Good morning. It's good to be with you. I am praising the Lord that I'm able to bring God's Word to you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'll just do a little short bio. 48 years ago, I came to this church when I was at uh, Simpson College. I started college when I was five, so you can do the um, no, I grew up as a heathen. <clears throat> uh, again, I was saved when I was in college, came here, and uh, Joel took me under his wing, and as I said to the men on Thursday night, any good thing is from the Lord, any bad things from Joel. So, <laughs> no, Joel has been a wonderful mentor throughout the years. I am so thankful that uh, uh, God had brought him into my life and uh, continues to be that way. Uh, We are thrilled uh, that our children, we have a couple of children that attend church here, the Cooks and the Schoenfelds, and uh, it is awesome that uh, they are attending church here. I think your pastors are outstanding, and um, I've heard uh, uh, Jeremy preach a couple of different times. I haven't heard Daniel preach, but uh, I think he's doing a super job with the youth, and so again, we're just thrilled that they are here. Uh, Marsdale has this long history of being a very healthy, solid church. Uh, you have uh, outstanding elders as well, all except for one, but I... <laughs> Where is Greg? There he is back there. <clears throat> uh, I've been playing golf with him for 48 years, trying to straighten him out. It doesn't seem to work, but no. Greg's a wonderful friend as well. Well, uh, this is Reformation Sunday, and uh, so I want to start out just something about the Reformation. Actually, the entire sermon is about the Reformation. The sermon is entitled, What is the Gospel? And I know what you're thinking out there. Well, I know that, and uh, hopefully you do uh, know what the Gospel is. But uh, with the Martin Luther coming upon the scene in 1517, October 31st, attacking the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Uh, he was beginning to formulate the doctrine of justification as he understood it. And then in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, he had to defend that doctrine uh, before uh, the world powers at the time, Charles V and the Pope, and they wanted him to recant. Martin Luther says, I will not, and here I stand. And so Martin Luther had articulated it in a very great way, the doctrine of justification. That is, how can a person be accepted before a holy God? Now that doctrine had been lost for basically a thousand years. Alistair McGrath in his uh, fine work on the history of justification said you'd have to look long and hard to find anything that was written about the doctrine of justification for 1,000 years. How could that happen? Well, another historian by the name of Roger Olson has written a little, uh, written quite a lengthy book about this, is that uh, what happened uh, during the apostolic age was already happening at the church at Galatia, as you might recall when Paul says, I'm amazed at how quickly you're uh, turning away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was happening even in Paul's day. But as Roger Olson tracked beyond that, he was saying that what happened in the church is that the book of James, in its thought on justification, superseded the book of Romans. Now, both of them work harmoniously. 
if you understand the book of Romans first. But what happened, according to Roger Olson, is that the church began to emphasize James. Now, in James, James was defending the idea that if you are truly justified, it will show in works. And so, we know from the book of Romans, for instance, that Abraham was justified long before he offered up his son Isaac. But James is saying is that by offering up his son Isaac, it was demonstrating that he was justified by God several years before that. And so James says, therefore, you're justified by works. Now, James didn't mean that you are saved by works. What, again, he meant was, is that if you are truly born again, you will show it in works. Faith without works is dead, as James had said. As he would say, the uh, demons believe in shudder. They believe in God, but does them no good. And so, if we are to understand the doctrine of justification, we need to go to the book of Romans before we go to the book of James. Then James makes sense. So, here in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15 is saying, I'm anxious to preach the gospel to you. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel, let me just read it so you don't think I'm making it up. It says this, Concerning his son, verse 3, chapter 1, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So the abridged definition of the gospel is it's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not snubbing the other two persons of the Godhead because if you honor the work of Christ, you're honoring the Father. And it is the job of the Spirit to glorify the work of Christ. So we could say, technically speaking, is that the gospel is about the triune Godhead. But Paul says, It is about the person of Jesus Christ. Because if you get the person and work of Jesus Christ right, you get the other two persons of the Godhead as as right as well. And so, as he says here, I'm anxious to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me just give you a heads up to know where I'm going. I'm actually going to fly over the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. So we'll be here until about 2.30. But (laughs) you guys are mature, you're wonderful, fantastic. So anything short of that, you're going to go hallelujah. No, I'm not going to stay here until 2.30. As I said, we'll fly over it. But um, where I'm going is this, is that the gospel, uh, you could say it this way, is the good news. That's the etymology of the word. Actually, the Bible is wonderful masterfully at understating things for emphasis. Actually, the gospel is the fantastic news, the wonderful news, uh, unbelievable news, Right? It isn't just a good news. It's the good news, as we shall see. And so the gospel actually is, again, God's, the good news of God's redemptive plan. And there are actually three parts to the gospel. Most Christians think there is just one part. But actually there are three parts to the gospel. As I said, it's the good news of God's redemptive plan. Uh, The first part is... Uh, God delivering us from the penalty of sin. The next part is delivering us from the power of sin. And then He's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. Or to use the biblical terminology, 
The gospel is about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, He didn't just save us by the gospel to something else. We were saved by the gospel to the gospel. It's all about God's redemptive plan. And so, again, in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And so now he starts. Verses 16 and 17 is the theme of the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Let's stop there for just a moment. You know, the gospel has the power to transform people's lives. It can transform a heathen. It can transform a self-righteous individual. The heathens were found, by the way, in Corinth. Paul talks about it, 1 Corinthians 6. He has this list of bad behavior, and he says, such were some of you. By the way, that was me. I was a heathen, never went to church, had no idea who Jesus Christ was. I didn't grow up in Africa, India, Asia, right here in the United States. My wife, on the other hand, was a goody two-shoes. She was a self-righteous sinner. (laughs) So our marriage is a microcosm of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transform a heathen and a self-righteous individual into saints. And so, that's the good news. So Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, because there is something in the gospel that everybody needs that nobody wants. Can you guess what it is? It's right there. He tells us what it is. He says there is something in the gospel that everybody needs that nobody wants. You know, most Christians will say, what's the love of God? No, that's not what Paul says. In fact, he never mentions the love of God until Romans chapter 5, by the way. But uh, he says what you need in the gospel is the very righteousness of God. I didn't see. That's what it says. For in it is the righteousness of God. You know, I've taught this before and preached it before, and I'll ask people, I'll, I'll ask them the question, so what is in the gospel that nobody wants that everybody needs? And they'll look at it and they go, faith? No. Uh, Jews? No. He says, for in it is the righteousness of God. You know, Martin Luther, um, as he was reading this passage, was greatly distraught by this because he was thinking that the righteousness that Paul is mentioning here is a righteousness that he doesn't have and uh, that he will never have. Until, until the light came on by the Spirit of God, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, what he's talking about here is a righteousness that God has that he will give us to us freely. The light comes on. And he says, it was as if heaven's gates opened up. Now I understand what he's talking about. You see, in the gospel is the very righteousness of God that we desperately need, and without it, we will never be saved. And most people don't want it. It's repulsive to them. And so now for the next three and a half chapters, the Apostle Paul is going to point out that everybody needs the righteousness that they don't have that only God can provide. So, um, he is going to demonstrate this again. uh, By the way, if you tell people, if the Spirit of God isn't working in their hearts, that they need a righteousness that they don't have in order to get to heaven, 
They're not happy about it. If you've ever tried to tell somebody about it. They're not happy. Who are you to say that? So he starts out now in verse chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know, evangelicals today are fond of saying that God loves you. Hmm. Is that accurate? For the wrath of God. You know, evangelicals spend all of their time trying to convince people who are sinners that God loves them. You know, here's a better solution. You need to convince them that they are under the wrath of God. Because if they understand that they are under the wrath of God, they've got a problem and they can't solve it. You know, most people, when you tell them that God loves them, they just assume, therefore, that I'm automatically in. Right? But he says, I didn't make this up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness means all idol worshiping, uh, which we all do. Unrighteousness, failing to keep God's Ten Commandments. So God stands opposed to mankind. Wow. You see, man has a problem. It's going to get worse here. Somebody might say, well, what if I never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ? I have... I have an escape route. You know, God isn't going to condemn somebody to hell if they've never heard about Jesus Christ and the gospel, right? No. They're without excuse. A heathen like myself, you don't have to be in Africa, India, Asia, wherever, South America, you could be here in America. That's what he's talking about here, by the way. He's talking about the heathen, those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're excused, right? They're not going to suffer the wrath of God, no. They're without excuse. You'll say, why? Why are they without excuse? Because God has made it plain to them that he exists. You could appeal to Psalm 19.1. For the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, I was just doing a chaplain service, and um, most of them are like 150 years old. And... Um, <laughs> So you're not quite sure they're getting it. You know, I'm not that far away from it. So, you know, I can make fun. But uh, I said, how do you know that God exists? And they gave some rather interesting answers. And I said, well, you know, here's how you can know that God exists. Look out the window. Well, if you could look out the window. The heavens declare the glory of God. And not only silently, but day to day pours forth speech. Not audibly, but certainly visibly. And so, the heavens declare what about the glory of God? Well, it declares, number one, that there's an eternal being. Is that this stuff didn't just come about by nothing. Some eternal being had to create it. Um, The law of cause and effect says for every effect there has to be something that caused it. And so... What caused it? Even Aristotle understood that an eternal being had to have caused everything. And so, uh, now, not only does it reveal an eternal God, it reveals a powerful God. You know, the more that astronomers look into space, the more they are amazed at what is out there. The incredible amount of power in our universe that's on display. One of those is the sun, by the way. But our sun is pretty small compared to a lot of other stars in the universe. But without it, we don't live physically or have light physically. So, 
They are without excuse. This is clear that there is a God, but instead of bowing down and seeking that one true God, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and do not give God His due honor. And so they come up with goofy ideas of how the universe originated, and that goofy idea, by the way, is a theory of evolution. You might be saying to yourself, how dare you say that? And by the way, I'm not against science. I like science, but origin science is foolish thinking. The theory of evolution falls flat on its three main pillars. The theory of evolution says that something came from nothing. No, that's not true. Something had to cause something. You just don't appear magically. Theory of evolution states that living stuff came from non-living stuff. No, that's not true. Have you seen that lately? Theory of evolution also says that, um, um, that through natural selection we evolved from simple cell to a complex cell, really. Um, by the way, those biologists in the know know this, that natural selection can only select out what is there. It cannot create new information. Where does the new information come from? Glad you asked. The Bible says everything reproduces after its own kind. So there is no harmony here whatsoever. Um, so, as a result of the heathen rejecting God, God gives them over to their degrading lust. And so, if you're not going to worship the one true God and you want to do your own sin, God says, okay, I'll let you go, and I'll take away my common grace, and this is what is going to happen. You're going to result in uh, all sorts of devious sins, sexual immorality, homosexuality, and you're going to call right wrong and wrong right. Does that sound familiar in our country today? So when people say, is God judging our country? I would say so, yes. <clears throat> so, the heathen is without excuse. So now he turns chapter 2. Now he's going to talk about the moral person. Is the moral person going to make it? You know, a lot of times Christians will think that, well, you know, I have a neighbor. He's really a great guy or a great woman. You know, I just can't imagine that God would send them to an eternal damnation. They're a moral person. The moral person would would judge all of those heathenistic types of things and say, hey, I, I agree that, that we should do good and we should have standards, moral standards and so forth. Again, we don't have time to look at it in great detail, but Paul will point out a couple of things about the moral person. Number one is that they don't even live up to their own standard. Um, well, you could use uh, David as an example, but... Um, remember he was criticizing the fictitious character that Nathan mentioned? And Nathan says, you're the guy. You can't even live up to your own standards, David. Um, and the woman caught in adultery, we're not sure that's exactly should be in the text, but it makes for good preaching, um, is that the woman is caught in adultery and Jesus said, cast the stone, anybody here that hasn't done or thought the same thing, and everybody walks away. You see, they understood that adultery was bad, but everybody is guilty of it. And just in case you don't think that is true, he says this, verse 16, chapter 2, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. So imagine this. 
Um, we have this machine that puts everything that you've ever done, everything that you've ever said, everything that you've ever thought, and we can put it on a DVD. And then we're going to go to Jack Trice Stadium, if you're a Cyclone fan, or a Kinnick Stadium, if you're a Hawkeye fan, depending on what you are. And we're all going to gather there, 50, 60, 70,000 people, and we're going to put that DVD in the player, and everybody can watch whatever you've said, whatever you thought, whatever you did, so that everybody can see it. Would everybody like that to be shown? Anybody? No. I mean, a five-year-old gets it. No, I'm not. I don't want that to be shown to everybody. Now, if that is true among our humanity peers, how much more devastating before a holy God? No wonder Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the holiness of God, says, Woe is me! I've come undone. So you see, the moral person generally just compares himself or herself to somebody else, and they think I'm doing pretty good, but that's not the comparison. You have to compare yourself to a holy God, and it's not going to work. So then he now, the next group of people are the religious people. Again, most of humanity thinks that all religion is going to go to the same place, heaven, and they're going to appear before God and everything's going to be hunky-dory. But Paul points out the most religious people and the most with the greatest advantages was the Jew. If anybody thinks that they're going to get to heaven based on religion, it's the Jew. Because they have all of the advantages. They had the scriptures. They had the promises. They had the temple. They had, Even the Messiah is a Jew. And yet, Paul says, just like the moral person, the Jew does not live up to their own standards, as Jesus Christ would point out to the Pharisees over and over and over again. So, if you think religion is going to save you, and if it didn't save the Jew... What other religion would save you? So, religion doesn't work either. And then, just in case you think he might have missed somebody, he says this, chapter 3, None is righteous, verse 10, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Wait a minute now, a lot of people seek for God. No, they don't seek the one true God. As Jesus said, you don't come to me lest you have your evil deeds exposed. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, just to make sure that you got this, is man basically good or is man basically evil? Okay, somebody got an A for the day. You know, modern psychology, by the way, I did major in psychology in college. Psychology says that man is basically good. No. According to this, man is basically evil. Again, as you compare him to a holy God. You know, at this particular, jun- at this particular juncture, a person should be crying out, Is there any hope? Is there any hope? 
If this is, if this is our lot, please, somewhere, somehow, somebody do something. Ah, got a good. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 21, apart from the law. You see what we said earlier? In the gospel is what? The righteousness of God that everybody needs, nobody wants, unless you're convicted of your sin before a holy God. Convicted so much so that you understand that I deserve eternal damnation. If you are at that point, or was ever at that point in your life, blessed are you. Because now you cry out. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that only Jesus can save us? As it says, He's the propitiation for our sins. That is, the wrath that was intended for us because we have broken God's moral law. The penalty for sin is death, eternal separation from a holy God. And so that the only one that can pay that penalty is somebody who is eternal, somebody who is willing, somebody who is perfect, and somebody who is human. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus fits the bill for all of that. And so that in three hours on the cross, He paid the penalty that you and I could never pay for all eternity. Again, the wrath that was directed towards us is diverted from us to Christ and the Father punished Christ because His justice must be satisfied. Psalm 89. His throne is one of righteousness and justice. And actually we thank God for that. And so Jesus Christ paid that for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Because we're on the precipice of eternal damnation. Except for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it doesn't cost us a thing. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to jump through hoops or do something along those lines. We are justified freely by grace. So let's make this clear. Justification is Jesus Christ, because of what His work has done, He has taken away our sins that deserve damnation, and He has given us His righteousness, free of charge. 100%. So let's put it in monetary terms. Prior to salvation, we were in debt, let's say, a trillion dollars. You think you could pay it off? No. Uh, but Jesus did pay it off. And here's even better news. Not only did He get us out of debt, He's going to give us His trillion. Wow! It might almost take me a couple of weeks to spend that. <clears throat> That's what we're talking about, justification. The removal of our sins, and we have now been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so that I can be, you can be accepted by a holy God. So that if I were to die today and I were to stand before heaven's gate and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, Terry? I wouldn't say because I'm a pastor. I wouldn't say because I was baptized. I wouldn't say any of those things. I would say because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you would say the same. And so in Romans chapter 4, he now tells us, what is saving faith? Let's just make that clear. What is saving faith? 
And there are two things that saving faith isn't. <clears throat> saving faith, by the way, uh, we could, it doesn't say it exactly this way, but you know what saves us, technically speaking? is not faith. What saves us is Jesus Christ. And our reaching out and receiving what Christ has done. That's saving faith. <clears throat> so when a person says, well, I believe, well, again, James, good for you. The demons believe in shudder. Every demon understood who Jesus was, didn't do him any good because they weren't trusting him on his work at the cross. So he says, okay, saving faith is this. It is believing that God justifies the ungodly. I like how R.C. Sproul has said this over and over again, is that all religions believe that God will justify the righteous, but that God would justify the ungodly. And then he uses David as an example, his horrific sin, and yet he is forgiven. And he talks about it in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. He who was an ugly, dirty sinner, premeditated murder and adultery. God justifies the sinner, not the righteous. But of course, you have to understand that you are a sinner, that there's nothing good that we can do. And then he gives another example is that saving faith is apart from any religious activity, and he uses Abraham as a classic example, is that Abraham was declared justified, that is accepted by a holy God, several years before he was ever circumcised. So any religious activity had nothing to do with his being accepted by God. Rather, simply believing, Abraham was believing in the future coming of the Messiah who would take away his sins. So as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed what God had promised God was able to do. But he doesn't end there, but he says this. It's not only them, but us as well. If we believe that Jesus Christ was put upon the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification, if you truly believe that, that's saving faith. I believe, so in other words, I believe, I'm a sinner, Christ went to the cross to pay my penalty, he died, was raised for my justification. By Christ raising again from the grave, it demonstrated that the Father was pleased with the Son's sacrifice. And if He's pleased with the Son's sacrifice, He's pleased with me, who accepts that sacrifice. So, that's the first part. Well, just a little bit more. Romans chapter 5. He now tells us what is the result of justification. Again, we don't have time to look at it. It is a wonderful chapter. If later on you want to read it over and over again, just a couple of things that he mentions here. We are now at peace with God. Not subjective peace, but rather we are at objective peace. There is no hostility now between the believer who is justified and God. We are at peace with Him. And while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, but in His great love He did this. This is the first time He now mentions love. And so that we are now saved from the wrath that is to come, that He talked about in verse 18. The believer is therefore delivered from the wrath, the eternal damnation, to those who refuse to accept it. And so... We are now done with part one of the gospel.
deliverance from the penalty of sin. <clears throat> At this particular point, it would be good for you to say, Amen. <laughs> Thank you, God. I mean, if at this particular juncture you're saying to yourself, wow, this is fantastic. You know, this is a truth that we dwell on really every day, shouldn't we? Thank you, God. You know, we complain and moan and groan because we don't have certain things, and it's like we're richer than we ever could think or imagine. We have an eternity with a wonderful, loving gracious God. You know, Martin Luther, at the preface of his Roman commentary, said this is the greatest epistle and an epistle that we should dwell on every day. But we're only one-third done, but only a few minutes from ending. He then moves on to deliverance from the power of sin. He's talked about God's amazing grace and somebody might conclude that because God is so gracious when we're such sinners that now that we are justified that we should continue to sin. And he says, God forbid that we should have that attitude. He says, do you not know that because of our union with Jesus Christ uh, that we had died with him from God's perspective when Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised, we were there. And so that when we We've come to accept him. It says that we have now been set free. Not we will be. We presently are. Unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about this, but this is of crucial importance for the Christian because, you see, most Christians think, I'm saved by grace, and then it's up to me the rest of the way. Um, you know, I need to keep the law. I mean, because now we understand what the law is and so forth. And so Paul deals with that at the end of Romans chapter 7. And he says, I was looking at the law and it says, Thou shalt not covet. Can't put anything above and beyond God. And so I'm going to try not to covet. That's a good thing to do. Uh, by the way, Paul agrees that the law is good because it does reveal the character of God. The law reveals the will of God for us. The problem is the law has no power to help us to do it. Not only does the law not, ha not help us do it, it actually incites sin. How, oh, see, little baby. <laughs> uh, you know, a child is a good illustration of this. You tell them not to do something, what are they going to do? Now they want to do it all the more. But it's not just a child, we do that as well. And so Paul says, the good I want to do, I don't do. I do the very thing I don't want to do. Every golfer knows this. <laughs> How many times I've, sat, I've stood over the little ball and I said, okay, keep your head down, keep your head down, keep your head down, swing. Ah! Well, I looked up. If I've done it once, I've done it a thousand times. If that's true in the physical world, how much more in the moral world? And so you see the Apostle Paul, he thinks to himself, now that I'm Christian, I'm not as bad as I was. But the Apostle Paul confesses, I'm still a sinner my flesh is desperately weak. I can't do it. So, what's the solution? Paul tells us, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ. The focus always goes back to Christ and his work of redemption. You see, Paul now will remind himself what Jesus Christ did, Romans chapter 6. He delivered me from the power 
of sin. You know, I've sat in on over 50 ordination councils, and I always ask pastors this. uh, How are you sanctified? And they almost always will say something like this. Well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I evangelize. Good for you. But that's not the answer. You can do all those things, by the way, and be miserable as a Christian. They always fail to mention this answer. is that by faith, I'm trusting that Christ has delivered me from the power of sin. That's the answer. So you always go back to Romans chapter 6. If that doesn't make sense to you, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 6 until the light bulb comes on. So now in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. That's a Christian now. Thank you. Thank you. There's no condemnation. And then he goes on this tirade of God's great love for us. And so... Uh, So that now I love my Lord even more. See, even as a Christian, I'm a desperate sinner. But the Gospel comes to my rescue. It's all about Jesus Christ and His great redemptive plan. And now at this point, you'd want to say amen. Okay, a few of you have got it. (laughs) And then... um, uh, Romans chapter 9, so somebody might ask this question, it's after the fact, is that if we're such sinners and none of us are seeking after God, how is it that anybody seeks after God? Well, I don't know about you, but I was smarter than the average bear. I don't know about you, but I was a little bit more righteous than you. No. Romans chapter 9 has to deal with unconditional election. We won't spend any time there. It's a controversial issue to be sure, but uh, don't answer this out loud. I don't want to embarrass you. But uh, in the logical order of salvation, which comes first, faith or regeneration? If you say regeneration, you get Romans 9. If you say faith, you might want to read Romans 9 over and over again. That's all I'm saying. Uh, It's pretty hard for a person to have faith when we're spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2. So if we aren't regenerated, how in the world can we believe? So, if you said regeneration comes before faith, you got it right. All right. So, we are delivered from the penalty of sin, we are delivered from the power of sin, and eventually we will be delivered from the presence of sin. And he doesn't spend a great deal of time about this, but Romans chapter 11 is an eschatological chapter that is a chapter about the last days. And when Israel, when God deals with the nation of Israel again, and that's what Romans chapter 11 is about, um, he is going to bring about the, the tribulation, and then eventually um, he is going to bring about a millennial kingdom and then the eternal state. Just to whet your appetite, chapter 11, verse 12. Excuse me. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Um, And if you want to know what it's going to mean, uh, I would encourage you to read uh, Isaiah uh, that speaks quite frequently of this blessed state of the Millennial Kingdom where there's going to be a restoration that takes place. Um, The... Desert will bloom like the garden. Uh, Animals will no longer be eating one another. A child can play by the den of a viper and not have to be afraid of getting poisoned. 
Um, there's not going to be any war uh, and so forth. And then there is going to be a, the great white throne judgment. The present earth will be destroyed. And then there will be the eternal state. And let me just, so in other words, we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. At that particular time, it'll be impossible for us to sin. It's sort of really unimaginable. But let me just, again, wet your, wet your appetite a little bit about this eternal state. Let me argue from the lesser to the greater. What is so great about heaven? Well, it's a place that we've been longing, to, looking for all of our lives. Heaven will be that place. You know, it's sort of like HGTV when they do these remodel homes and they bring in the person and they go, oh, I just can't believe this is above and beyond what I ever thought it would possibly be. And uh, so will heaven be. It'll be like, I, I, this is unimaginable. This, this is just what I was looking for. It's going to be a fantastic place. It's going to be a great reunion. Those who have died before us in the faith, we will see them. We will celebrate. We will hug one another. It'll be great. Um, it'll be a time of celebration of every tongue, every nation coming together, praising the Lord. But the ultimate of heaven is Jesus Christ. Because you see, that is what we have been made for. We have been made to behold His glory. Psalm 16 says it this way, In His presence are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that wonderful? See, a lot of times we think getting into heaven is that God is sort of the cosmic killjoy. No, He's the epitome of it all. We have been made to behold God's glory. And so that when we get there, we're going to go, Oh, this is what it's all about. Let me just stumble through with an illustration to maybe help you a little bit here. I remember going to a, a county fair, and there were these thoroughbred horses. Never been to a horse race before, and they were pulling some wagons. A thoroughbred, you know, they're not bred to pull wagons. And then there was the race, where the thoroughbreds are now running. And as they are running, my impression of it was like, these horses are like, This is what we've been made for. If the horses could have been talking, they would have said, I feel the pleasure of God when I'm running. And so that when we see our Lord with clear eyes, not in shadows anymore, we're going to go, this is it. Deliverance from the presence of sin into the very presence of God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. By the way, that's the gospel. You know, the gospel, I I should say this, not assume that you got it. Um, The gospel is the good news of God's redemptive plan. It involves deliverance from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, from the presence of sin. Or to use biblical terms, justification, sanctification, glorification. Just you guys are justified. Just you guys are delivered from the power. These guys are going to be in the presence of God. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Let's now pray. Lord, we thank you for your awesome gospel. It's all about you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for 
Your amazing love to put it all into operation because You love humanity. And that You came and You died for Your sheep so that we might have this tremendous blessing. Lord, every day, might we just be thrilled with some aspect of the Gospel. That's where our heart beats. It's what You have done for us. And so, Lord, we love You because of it, because You have first loved us. In Your name we pray. Amen.